wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Sam, and I am a recovering legalist. And by the way, you are a recovering legalist too. All of us here today are either legalists or recovering legalists. Now, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by legalism? Legalism has a couple of meanings. Let me define this term before we dive into this text. Legalism is the idea, the belief that we earn God's favor through keeping the law, through law-keeping, through rule-keeping. At the most basic level, legalism is work salvation. It is trying to earn God's favor and God's forgiveness by the stuff that we do. And if you're a Christian here today, before your conversion, you were steeped in legalism. Here's what I mean by that. Before you became a believer in Jesus, we all trusted in some way in our own works. We all trusted to some degree in our own efforts, in our own sincerity, in our own religious effort, in our own niceness to gain God's favor. Becoming a Christian means turning your back on that. But here's the thing about legalism. Legalism is a chameleon. It changes color. It's camouflaged. Legalism hangs on in our hearts even after we become believers, even as we recognize, okay, I'm not saved by my works, but there's still a sneaking suspicion in our hearts that we've got to keep some rules and we've got to do some stuff on the outside to keep God happy. Legalism can look quite pious. It goes undercover. It lurks in every heart. It lurks in every church disguised in that clothing of piety. Legalism is not just a way of trying to earn salvation through works. Legalism is also a way of trying to be holy by rule-keeping. Legalism secretly says in its heart, I thank you, God, that I am not as other men are who do X, Y, or Z. This is, listen, I lived so much of my Christian life doing exactly that. Uh, when I was in college, I came into college with this idea that being a good Christian meant you read the King James Version and you didn't listen to music that had any kind of a beat and you were clean cut and you had a certain appearance. Looking back, it just seems so absurd to reduce pleasing God, to reduce holiness to Elizabethan grammar and aesthetic taste and fashion preferences. Right? Just, that's just nuts, right? To be like, that's, that, that was the, the standard I have. Yet how many of us are measuring other people's holiness, other people's standing before God, based on these external things about which the Bible says nothing? That's legalism. So I am a recovering legalist, and and you are today. And my goal is for us to see what legalism is, according to the sermon that Jesus presents, and expel it from our hearts, and go to war against it in, in our lives and in our church. So where we're going to go this morning is seeing seven characteristics of legalism. This is a long passage. We're going to try to move quickly through this. Seven characteristics of legalism. And here's what we don't want to do today is being like, oh, let me think about that person who's over there. They're, they're, they're illegal. No, the goal is not to do, I mean, that's precisely what we're not trying to do, but to turn the searchlight of Scripture into the darkness of our own hearts and say, where is legalism continuing to hang on in my own heart? In what ways is legalism still there and hanging on that I need to expel from my heart? So seven characteristics of legalism we must expel from our hearts. Number one, legalism elevates tradition over truth. Now, in this context, we're dealing with the Pharisees. This whole chapter has been about conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Let's just reorient ourselves in the the context. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We're calling the series Journey to Jerusalem. Began at the end of chapter 9. He's slowly making his way to that final Passover, to the cross, to that final confrontation, that final conflict where the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees will all conspire together to murder Jesus. We're moving towards that. And we get these, these, these different scenarios on the road. And, and chapter 11 has really been all about this escalating conflict, really starting in verse 14. Jesus does a miracle, and they're like, mm, you only did that because Satan gave you the power to do that. And then other people are like, well, we actually need to see more evidence, more proof. We've dealt with that over the last couple of weeks, that, that hostility that rejects Jesus by calling him demonic, that hostility that rejects Jesus by saying he's not done enough. It's now going to just really come to a head here at the end of the chapter. So verse 37, as he spoke, so Jesus has literally been confronting 
this this sin of uh, of ascribing demonic you're saying Jesus is empowered by demons. This sin of saying we need more evidence, more proof. This hard heartedness. A certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. So he's inviting him over for lunch. Yeah, come over to my house for lunch. Maybe it was a Sabbath day. We don't know the scenario. Now, when we read this, we, we often think that the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, it's, inevit- it's inevitable. But by no means was this inevitable. In fact, Jesus and the Pharisees came to some very, very similar convictions when it came to, uh, to religious matters, when it came to the, the, the scriptures. The Sadducees, they denied miracles could happen. They denied the resurrection. The Pharisees were like, no, miracles happen. Resurrection, that, 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 that's, that's a real thing. They took the, the Bible seriously. Yet, they were full of hypocrisy and and legalism. Now, the word Pharisee simply means separate ones. This was a group that arose during the time between the Old and New Testament. They wanted to protect the Jewish religion from the encroachments of uh, of Greek ideas and Greek culture. And really, their desire, their aims were laudable. They wanted to be separate and distinct from the culture. They wanted to protect God's law. They took the Torah very seriously. In fact, they said... We want to be so careful that we don't violate the rules in the Torah. We're going to build fences around it. So if God says, keep the Sabbath day, we're going to put actual, you know, sort of these different rules around to make sure we don't get anywhere close to that. So if the, the, the standard of God's law is here, we're going to draw the line over here and over here so we don't even go close. That's what the Pharisees did. In their zeal to apply the Torah, they actually obscured it. Here's what happened is they had these... These, these rules, these, they're, they're called the traditions of the, older, the elders, that they added to the Torah. And over time, over generations, the rules that they added became indistinguishable from God's law. That's what they did. In their zeal to protect the law, they buried the law. The ship of truth was encrusted with the barnacles of tradition. The teeth of biblical authority were caked with the plaque of centuries of human rules and regulations. We've got an example of it. Look at verse 38. When the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he did not wash before dinner. Now, this is not about hygiene. It's like, oh my goodness, that's disgusting. He didn't wash his hands before he ate. This is about ceremonial washing. Just put this reference in your notes. Mark 7, 1 to 4. We get a great explanation. In the Old Testament, we find out there's, there's ritual purity and ritual impurity. And the Pharisees were like, listen, we don't want to ever have a meal where we are ritually and ceremonially unclean. So just to cover all of our bases, we're going to require everyone to undergo the special ceremonial washing before you eat. It had nothing to do with bacteria or hygiene. Washing your hands is a good thing. Please do it before you go through the line today, right? It's a good thing to do. But this was about this external rule, this tradition that was added that was not required by Scripture. There's no verse in the Bible that says you have to do ceremonial washing. And they would, they would have the hands face up and pour the water down and then the hands face down. And there would be sort of pronouncements. It was very ritualized. And here's the thing. Notice this guy is shocked that Jesus does this. This is not just a personal preference. But this was a tradition that now is being used as a criteria to judge other people's spirituality. Legalism is elevating tradition over truth. This tradition about hand washing is being brought up to the level or even above the level of what God himself said. Be careful of any denomination or tradition that regards God's word and human tradition as of equal value. That's, that is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, that, yeah, we've got the Scripture, that's authoritative, but we have the magisterium, we have the, the tradition of the Church to rightly interpret that, and it is authoritative. No, it is not. God's Word alone is our authority. Human traditions do indeed err. Human traditions do indeed contradict one another. But let's not just say, oh, good, yeah, the Catholics, they get it wrong. We're, we get off scot-free. Don't we also have traditions as independent Baptists that have taken the same level as God's word? We have, church tra- we have traditions about what you wear to church. You know, I'm wearing a coat and tie today. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But when that begins to be, well, people who don't wear coats and ties, they're not as godly. Or if people wear colored shirts rather than white shirts, they're not as spiritual. Right? That literally is a thing that is taught in supposedly biblical churches. Social drinking. The Bible forbids drunkenness. And to be careful to avoid drunkenness, we say, let's just not drink. By the way, that is my personal conviction. I do not drink. I am opposed to drinking. But that is an application of a biblical principle, not an actual command of the Bible. In the Bible, they did indeed actually drink from time to time. What the Bible forbids is drunkenness. 
And we take an application, a human tradition, a good application of that and say, actually, the Bible says absolutely no drinking whatsoever. And you don't even go to a restaurant where they may serve things like, careful, we're going beyond scripture here. No going to movies. There might be bad movies that they show at the movie theater. So don't go to any movies. Well, the Bible doesn't require that. What the Bible requires is, I'll set no wicked thing before my eyes. It doesn't matter if that's on a big screen or if that is on a little screen, right? That, that, you set up no, no going to movies. Or Bible translations. I love the King James Version. It's a great translation of the Bible. But there is nowhere in the Bible, you can read, I've read the entire thing, there's nowhere anywhere in the 66 books of the Bible that says King James Version. The only place where it says that is on the, the spine of my Bible. So using this translation, it's been around for 400 years, it's a human tradition. It's not a bad tradition, but let's not take a tradition and say, that's actually biblical truth and put it in our doctrinal statement, elevating tradition to the level of truth. That's what legalism does. And we all have ways of doing this, just pointing out some ones that maybe are, we have a, have a bent towards. So the problem is not with the tradition, it is with elevating the tradition to the level of truth and using it as a criteria by which you judge other people. That's the first characteristic of legalism. Let's move on to another one. By the way, if you think I am done uh, knocking sacred cows, just hang on to your hat. Uh, number two, legalism ignores the internal. It ignores the internal. So Jesus responds, verse 39, Now do ye Pharisees may clean the outside of the cup and platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. He says, you guys are really good on doing the outward stuff, but you've ignored the internal. You have ignored the heart. The thing that God cares about most of all is the heart. So he's got this illustration. So you clean the outside of the cup. Uh, imagine going to a restaurant, and they, you, you see them clear the tables next to you, and they, uh, they, they just grab the, the coffee cup that's on the table, dump the coffee out, kind of wipe the lipstick off the rim of the cup, and then just put it on your table. But hang on a second. You didn't really clean that thing. Or something that literally happened one time, my dad had a cup of coffee, and he likes cream and sugar in his coffee. Well, he went out in the shed, and, and, and I do this as well. I think I inherited this absent-mindedness from my dad. He left the coffee, coffee mug with the cream and sugar and coffee in the, in the shed for like four months. You can imagine what happens with cream and sugar and coffee and dark places with spiders. It like grew all kinds of mold, and my brother found it. And it was so disgusting, he literally threw up when he like got a whiff of this. Does not matter how clean that coffee mug is on the outside, it's full of disgusting stuff. Notice Jesus does not just say, you clean the outside, but the inside of the cup is a little stained and grubby. No, he says it is full of, this, this word is tra translated ravening, greed and wickedness. It's like you have a beautiful coffee mug that you use to clean the litter box out with. Anybody want to use that coffee mug? Anybody want to use that for today's Fourth Sunday Fellowship? It says, your heart, oh, the outside is beautiful. You've got your ceremonial washings and all of your rules, but your heart is oozing over with the filth of greed. By the way, that's an interesting thing that Jesus points out, greed. We've got um, sins that we, we're really opposed in today's world. Uh, our culture kind of has sins that they kind of zero out rightly. The big one today, the sin of abuse. Abuse is evil. It is wicked. It goes against God's word. But our culture will then overlook sins like greed, covetousness, anger, right, vile language. By the way, we do the same in the church. Um, we'll hear sermons that we preached against adultery. Adultery is sin and homosexuality. We're, we're right on calling those out. But greed, man, that's one of those what, what, what's been called a respectable sin. In fact, greed in our culture can even be regarded as good. Greed is good, right, uh, is the idea. And, 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 wow, people going out and getting wealthy, man, that's just awesome. doesn't matter how greedy they are, how many people they ran over. Jesus calls it out. He's like, this is disgusting in God's sight. So verse 40, you fools did not he that made that which is outside make that which is inside. So, okay, you're basically, by saying that I'm only going to be concerned about the outside while ignoring the heart, is you are denying that God created the heart. He says, that's what you're doing. The same God who made the outside made the inside. The man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He says, yeah, that is foolish. Now, is Jesus violating his own word? Remember in Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you say, thou fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Well, obviously, Jesus doesn't contradict himself. He's using this in its Old Testament sense as someone who is living as a practical atheist. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He is legitimately saying, this is not an insult, but this is an accurate diagnosis of their hypocrisy. What do they do? They covered over the corruption of their hearts with the cosmetics of external religion. 
They focused on behavior to the exclusion of character. And they bought into this lie that as long as their sin was invisible to others, it was inconsequential to God. Oh, beloved, may we not live under the illusion that we can hide sin from God. May we not buy into the lie that as long as no one else sees it, it doesn't really matter. As long as it doesn't affect my life, God sees the heart. He sees every wicked thought. He hears every wicked attitude that we have. He hears the words that we speak in our hearts but don't utter with our lips. That's why Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, you look at a woman to lust. It's heart-level adultery. Thankfully, it hasn't come to fruition, but it's a violation of God's law. God looks at the heart. He is concerned about the heart. He is concerned about the motivations. Nothing wrong with being, doing things on the outside. What we do in the heart will show itself on the externals. So Jesus is not buying into the idea where people say, well, my heart's in the right place. I just, you know, never do what God says. Well, that just shows where your heart really is. If your heart is in the right place, it will change your behavior. But he's saying simply changing the behavior, looking good on the outside without being concerned about the heart, has it backwards. God changes us from the inside out. So verse 41, rather give alms of such things as ye have. Uh, Really tough verse to translate. But give alms with reference to the things that are inside is what he is saying. I think what he means is give from your heart. The problem here with these guys, their particular sin that was oozing from their hearts was greed. Jesus says you need a new heart. Not one that is greedy, but one that is generous. What needs to happen is the heart needs to change. Now, he's not saying earn heaven by giving to charity. That's not what he's teaching. But what he is saying is you need a brand new heart. Right now, your heart is full of greed. You need a heart that is full of generosity. Ezekiel 36 promises that God says, I will give you a new heart. Is that, not the, is that not the heart of Christianity? The promise of the new birth, the promise of a new nature, the promise of a new love and a new affection and new life, to be made a new creature in Christ. That's what the gospel is all about. And God then transforms us from the inside out. So legalism concerned with the external, just how do we look and what do people think of us and do, you know, are, you, are you dressed a certain way? I, I, at times was in churches growing up that so long as you came to church with a white shirt and a tie on, everybody would assume, that, man, you really have it together when there could be all kinds of things going on in your heart, in your life, in your marriage, covered under this veneer, of just dressing nicely. Yeah, legalism, it ignores the internal. But a third characteristic of legalism, legalism not only elevates tradition over truth, legalism not only ignores the internal, legalism number three majors on the minors. Verse 42. So now Jesus is going to begin pronouncing, woe unto you. He's going to have six statements where he says, woe unto you, three will be to the Pharisees, three will be to the lawyers. These two groups really overlap. Uh, But good balance there. This word woe has a couple of senses to it. One of them is judgment is coming on you. And yet you better repent. It's a a declaration of God's judgment and his wrath coming. But it's also a statement of sorrow and grief. As Jesus looked at these Pharisees, he felt genuine grief at how they had gotten this wrong. He felt genuine sorrow. So don't picture Jesus being like, Woe unto you Pharisees! And he's out there with a big sign, Woe unto the Pharisees. But this has got grief. There's a tear in his eye. There is pain in his heart as he is looking at you. You're so deceived. So, woe unto you, verse 42, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment in the love of God. So, okay, you guys are really good at tithing your herbs. Okay, the tithe, giving a tenth of the, uh, the increase of your field. So in the Old Testament, this was commanded by God to his people. Deuteronomy 14, they're supposed to give a tenth of their increase to, for a couple of reasons. One was to support the worship of the, te- the temple and tabernacle. Another was to make sure that the Levites and the priests were taken care of. And there was another tithe that they gave every three years in addition to that tithe that went to support the poor of the land. It was a social safety net. It would be what we would call today sort of welfare to make sure that the, the, the widows and the fatherless, the orphans were taken care of. So he says, giving a tithe, okay, God commands that in the Old Testament. We can read about that in also Deuteronomy 26 and Malachi 3. It's also noted in the book of Nehemiah. This is something that was rooted in what God actually told them. So that's why he says at the end of the verse, yeah, you should tithe, right? This is something God commands in the Old Testament. Uh, By the way, we're living on the other side of the cross. The law has been fulfilled. The command to us is not take one out of ten and give it to God legalistically and just following the law, but it's to give generously and sacrificially, knowing that everything belongs to God. He says, okay, you guys tithe your, 
mint and your roots. They're going out into their garden and they're counting, like they're literally counting. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, one of those is God's, nine for me, one for God. Nine for me, one for God. They're literally going through, like, this is just over the top. They're going home to the spice cabinet and getting the little spice scale out, you know, those little ones that you weigh out of what's going on. And, okay, one-tenth, so many grams are going to go to God. Like, just over-the-top emphasis on the miners. They were so concerned with the smallest details of tithing. They actually neglected the larger point. By the way, even though there's no command in the Old Testament to tie mint and rue, there's this general command to tithe of the increase of your field, the rabbis then came along as they did to say, let's just define what that means. And there were some things they said, you know what, you don't have to tithe. You don't have to tithe your rue, whatever that, that particular herb is. This one was actually exempted even by the rabbis. Here's what Jesus is saying. You guys not only go beyond what the law itself requires, you go beyond what even the most conservative, legalistic rabbis require. I mean, you guys are, boom, really into tithing. These were the guys who would figure out, okay, am I going to tithe on my gross or on my net, and am I going to count my tax return? And they were really good at the calculations and their spreadsheets. Again, Jesus is not saying that that is wrong. But he is saying you are so focused on the minors, look at the end of verse 42, you pass over justice and love for God. You missed the point. You missed the forest for the trees. Remember, the whole point of tithing was to worship God and to take care of the poor. Like, that was the point. That's why you do it. And they're doing it without any regard to God or the poor. Because you've neglected judgment. Okay, what is judgment? That's the idea of justice. That is what we owe our neighbors. So the Lord has showed thee, O man, what does the Lord require of you but to love mercy, to do justice, and to walk humbly with thy God. That was the point of it all along. Love your neighbors yourself. Love your God. In the Old Testament, justice was about defending the defenseless and the weak. It involved concern for the least of these, for the widows, for the fatherless, for the immigrant, for the poor. I think in our day we could add to that list the unborn. For the vulnerable and the oppressed of society, Old Testament piety meant you don't oppress them. In fact, you go out of your way to defend them and provide for them. So here's the idea. The Pharisees are over there counting all of their mint leaves, but they don't give a rip about the poor. While they tithe their mint ostensibly to care for the poor, they truly despised them and were themselves greedy. So these are people who are like, we're on our way to a, uh, to a concert to help the homeless in Mobile. And on your way, you walk right past a homeless guy lying on the side of the street. It's just like, wouldn't it be better just to help that guy and not? So they ignored justice. He says they ignored the love of God. Now, this could be God's love for us or it could be our love for God. And I think it's the second our love for God. So justice, that's loving your neighbor as yourself, and then the love of God is our loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, religious activity, putting money in the offering box in the back, partaking of the Lord's Supper, singing hymns, coming to church, is completely pointless if it is not done out of love for God. It's what Michael read for us in Isaiah 1. Is God says, I hate your sacrifices. I hate your worship. I hate your church services. Because you're coming in with all your sin unrepentant, and you're coming in without even caring who I am. That's pretty strong language that God has. So the end of the verse, Jesus says, do both. What does he mean? Well, if you love God and you love your neighbor, well, of course you will will say, I want to do what God tells me. You'll have things in the, the right order. You will put the horse in front of the cart, not the other way around. So that's the third characteristic of legalism, is it... Majors on the minors. It gets caught up in all these little things that don't really matter while neglecting the things that do matter. It feels like our world is like literally on fire, right? We're hearing the news like there's wars breaking out and our culture is just in this downward spiral circling the drain. And we literally have Christians that are still bickering about stuff that doesn't even matter while people are on their way to hell. It just, it just we seem to stop it, right? Like we need to focus on... Love God, love your neighbor. Let's tell people about Jesus. Let's preach the word. Yes, doctrine matters. Yes, theology matters. But all these piddly things that Christians squabble about, neglected the weightier matters of the law. Okay, a fourth characteristic of legalism is it promotes pride. Verse 43. One to you Pharisees, you love the uppermost seats in the synagogues, the greetings in the markets. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And likely the original reading is shorter, just woe unto you. For you are as graves which appear not, and men walk over them. They're not even aware of them. Okay, here, you're pronouncing a woe, a judgment on them because of their pride. 
Verse 43, he's like, I'm going to pronounce a woe on your conceited pride. He's drilling down into their hearts. They loved the best seats in the synagogue. Now, in our, in our churches, we all like to sit towards the back, like the front three rows are virtually empty. The best seats in the synagogue would have been these ones up here. Like, if you were really important to become, sit on the platform, and you, everyone will see that, oh, you're a Pharisee, and you're there in your big robes and your fancy headgear, and there is a holy man. And so if you're really holy and you come to church, come sit on the platform. And then you could sit here and mm, nod approvingly as the message was said, oh, that's so good, preacher. And everyone could see, wow, you are very spiritual. They loved that kind of attention. In today's setting, it would be they loved retweets and likes. They loved conference invitations. They loved being featured on the cover of Christianity Today. They loved this being called Dr. So-and-so and being lauded as someone who was special. We have, tragically, in our Christianity today, this celebrity culture. But to me, celebrity Christian, that just feels like an oxymoron. A Christian rock star. It should be all about Jesus, right? Like, not about me getting attention for myself. But more to the point, because I don't know that any of us here are in danger of becoming Christian celebrities anytime soon. But the danger for us is being concerned about the opinion of others. Legalism is about performance. So other people see. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, you pray on the street corners to be seen of men. You, you, you fast, and then you make sure you walk around looking all hungry. So people are like, what are, you, are you fasting today? Oh, yes, I'm fasting today. So easy to do our religion to be seen of men, to be concerned about what people think. It's self-centered. It's self-promoting pride. There's such a danger in letting pride intrude into our worship and letting conceit corrupt our convictions. Let me give you an example. How many of you have heard the verse, abstain from all appearance of evil? How many of you have heard that verse before? This is how I heard this preached. Well, make sure you don't go to the movies because somebody might see you there and then draw conclusions that maybe you're going and watching something other than like Toy Story and they would think bad things about you. Rather than saying, hey, be concerned about what God thinks, it's saying, be concerned about what other people think. By the way, that's not what that verse means. We could do a sermon on that sometime. That, that is a complete slaughtering of what that verse means in the context. And here's what's even more insidious. That is appealing to the precisely the wrong motivation. Don't do something that someone else might think is bad, not because you actually believe that it is bad, but because you're concerned about what someone else thinks. We do not do our Christianity to impress other people. We don't do it to try to look good to other people. And if we raise a generation of young people and tell them, you need to do this so you will look good, eventually they'll be in a setting where doing what is right will no longer be socially acceptable. We're getting there as a society. And then we're shocked when they go along to say, well, holding biblical conviction is not socially acceptable, so I'm going to discard those because we trained them. In the setting here in the church, well, make sure you look good to people. Be afraid of what people might think about you. It's precisely what Jesus is saying. We hear the statement, we need to be concerned about what we do because the world is watching. No, our concern is not the world is watching, but God is watching. True holiness fears God and not man. True holiness is more concerned about what God says about something and what God sees and what God knows and his estimation than what other people might say. Verse 44, he, he moves on. He says, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are his graves that don't appear. In, in Matthew's gospel, he says, You're like whitewashed sepulchers. And on one level, here's what he's meaning is, Hey, it's white, painted white on the outside. On the inside, it's full of bones and rotting flesh. But the idea of the, of the whitewashed sepulchers is this. Uh, according to the Old Testament, coming into contact with a body would make you ceremonially unclean. So you don't want to be close to any, any, any sepulchers, any, any uh, tombs. You know, it would be a cave with a stone rolled in front of it, like we think of in terms of Easter. And so what the Jews would do every spring before the Passover time when people would be traveling is they would paint those sepulchers white just to be, hey, stay away. You don't want to become ceremonially, ceremonially unclean by coming into contact inadvertently with a dead body. So when Jesus says you're an unmarked grave that people are walking over, here's what he is saying. In all of your zeal to avoid the corruption of the world, you're actually the cause of that corruption. Ouch. You're all concerned about separating from people. You're all concerned about, well, I don't want to be on the same platform with so-and-so or be in alliance with them, when in reality, you're the one who is causing the corruption. He says, not only do you conceal corruption in your heart behind a thin veneer of whitewash, you're actually, actually the cause of corrupting others. That's strong 
language, strong language indeed. Say, you're the cause of corruption. He's saying to the Pharisees, the greatest danger of corruption is not the society around you that you're trying to stay away from. It is the sin within you. That's what you need to be concerned about. It's legalism. It promotes pride. Listen, if your worship of Jesus or your grasp of theology or the personal standards you take lead you to think, well, I'm, I'm better than other people, you're missing the point. You're doing it wrong. In my understanding of Scripture, I know Scripture better than all those other people. I thank the O Lord that I'm not as those churches down the street that don't understand the Bible like we do. That's Phariseeism. When I say, I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like those other people who are all seeker-sensitive and have motorcycles driving down the center aisle of their church services and helicopters dropping eggs on Easter. I thank you that I'm not as they are. Those things, indeed, are wrong. We can critique them. But when pride begins to creep into our hearts, we have slipped into legalism. Okay, I've got to move on here. Number five, legalism multiplies man-made rules. I said there's a couple different varieties of legalism. There's the kind of legalism that says, I'm going to earn God's favor, earn my salvation through works. But then there's the type of legalism that's a danger for us, even as born-again Christians, of defining holiness by man-made rules. Okay, we come into verse 45. So remember, this is the middle of dinner. Don't forget the context. They're literally laying around a low table. Dinner settings in the ancient Near East are very intimate. This is not, they didn't go to Golden Corral and sit around a big table with noise around them. They didn't just pick up a couple of pizzas from Papa John's on their way home and throw some paper plates out. No, this would have been a very formal event. They would have been laying around a table literally on your side with your feet extended away from the table. People are sort of within breathing distance of you. And here's Jesus at this formal setting where there's all of these rules of etiquette completely running roughshod over all of the rules of etiquette. He's being a very, very rude dinner guest by the standards of the day. And so the lawyer says to him in verse 45, Master, thou thus saying, thou reproachest us also. Okay, so we've got the Pharisees. The Pharisees were like a religious sect, a religious party. There's kind of almost like a religious political party. Those are the Pharisees. The lawyers were... A profession. Now, I don't think lawyers today who are downtown in, in suits and, and you know, making big commercials about you know, suing people or whatever. No, the lawyers here were the experts in the Torah. These were the religious scholars. These were the, the, the PhDs in theology, if you will. They're also called scribes in other places. These are the guys who spent all day studying the Bible and figuring out how it applied. And most of these scribes were Pharisees. Not all Pharisees were scribes, but most scribes were indeed Pharisees. The Sadducees, just for context, uh, they tended to be the priests and to be the ones in, in Jerusalem. So if you generally think, okay, Sadducees, priests, they go together. Pharisees, scribes, synagogue, they go together. You kind of have a general picture of what's going on. Again, they are the religious conservatives. They disagree with the corruption that's occurring in the Jewish religion as they're sort of capitulating to Roman and Greek ideas. They're right about that. But here's what the, what the legal experts did, these Torah scholars did. They spent all day studying the Torah, quibbling about how to come up with authoritative applications. Basically, they said, you know, God didn't really say enough, so we need to say some things for him. Yeah, so we're going to add to the, the, the commandments God gave specific applications. So, example, no work on the Sabbath day. These guys will come along, okay, what, what's work? When does the Sabbath day really begin? Right? When, when is it? Sunrise, sunset, like where, where, where does it begin? So they came up, well, would you hold your hand up in the sky and you can see five stars? That's the beginning of Sabbath. And work, okay, sewing on a button, that's okay, but sewing on more than one button, that's work. Right? Spitting on the ground, not allowed on the Sabbath because there might be a seed in the ground and spitting on it may indeed water it, and now you are doing agriculture on the Sabbath. You see how ridiculous this gets. They dictated the precise applications of God's precepts to daily life. They came up with over 6,000 rules. That's a lot of rules. And honestly, even if you were the one who wrote the rules, you would probably forget the rules and inadvertently break the very rules that you yourself came up with. So they come along and say, by going after the Pharisees, Jesus, you're also reproaching us. Do you really, do you really mean that? I think he's kind of giving Jesus an out and off ramp. Like, man, Jesus, maybe you just had a really rough day. You've got a headache. You're, you're, you don't like the food. You don't, surely don't mean to, 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 to reproach, to insult us who are so highly esteemed among the Jewish people. Well, verse 46, I kind of like this. Uh, Jesus is saying, you know what, you're right, I probably overspoke here, and you guys are, you know, 
you're, you're pretty good, good people. No, verse 46, Jesus doubles down. Woe unto you also, ye lawyers. Like, you know what? You're right. Your message was received. You got it right. I fully intended to reproach you as well. Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves will not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. They, they multiplied rules. And all of this interpreting of the Old Testament law and coming up with specific applications. They burdened people down. What, what a picture. He's saying you're treating people like they are pack animals and you're just piling rule after rule on them to where they are collapsing under the weight of it. So contrary to this interrupter's insinuation, Jesus has no intention of exonerating the lawyers. He fully intends to condemn them as well. They are just as culpable of legalism as the Pharisees. In a sense, the lawyers made the rules, the Pharisees enforced them. It's like, yeah, y'all are both guilty of this legalism. They felt that if God's word did not address a particular situation, well, then they would. So what did they do? They deprived God's people of their rightful liberty, of their freedom of conscience by dictating every life's circumstances. Now, notice what he says at the end of the verse. He says, you won't touch one of those burdens with your fingers. It has a couple of possible meanings. One of them is you preach one thing, but you yourself don't do it. And I imagine that was probably true. They knew all the loopholes. They knew, okay, yeah, everyone has to tithe, but we kind of know the tax code so well we can kind of get out of that. Certainly that's part of it. Part of it is also you burden people, but you just sort of stand back and say, well, have fun keeping those rules. I'm not going to help you at all. They exempted themselves from the rules that they made for others. They were focused on what other people should do or not do. Then they would heap scorn and guilt on anyone who violated their petty rules. Legalism today does the same thing, multiplies man-made rules. Okay, God calls us to be modest. Okay, well, we're going to figure out exactly what that means. So, so many inches above the knee or below the knee, we're going to decide what, what modesty is. I think we know what modesty is and isn't. Right? It's one of those things you know it when you see it kind of things. But we feel the need to sort of define and we have to do this and this and this in this particular situation. And we present that as if it is authoritative when God has not spoken. Listen, when we do that, it's not just, ah, you went a little overboard. We've actually committed a gross sin. One of the most serious sins in the Old Testament was to say, thus saith the Lord when the Lord has not spoken. And yet we have Christians who say, God says you have to do it this way when you're like, I'm I'm just not seeing that in the the, the Bible. Like, where, where are we getting that from? It's one thing to say, hey, here's a wise application of a biblical principle. It's another thing to say, this is what you have to do when God has not actually said that. We have no freedom, beloved, to bind people's consciences where God's word has not spoken. We believe in biblical authority. That means only God's word can bind consciences. Not us. Not our systems of rules and regulations. Not our preferences. Again, nothing wrong with having preferences. Nothing wrong with drawing lines. But there is a problem. We say God drew the line when I really was the one who drew the line. Legalism multiplies man-made rules. Okay, number six. Legalism, and I, I have touched on this already, silences Scripture. Verse 47. Woe unto you. He's talking to the lawyers, for you build the the sepulchres, the tombs, the monuments of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for ye indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Here's what they were doing is saying, oh, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, we have their words in Isaiah, Jeremiah. If you read the accounts of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they were not received by their contemporaries. Isaiah was sawn in half, according to the tradition, by the king, king Manasseh. Didn't like its message. We're going to murder you in just a horrible way to butcher you. Jeremiah, man, the guy really suffered horribly for proclaiming God's truth. They were never popular. They were murdered by the people they were sent to go and preach to. But Jesus' generation comes along and they're like, oh man, those prophets, we really, we really honor them. We're going to build great monuments for them where they're buried. We're going to honor their legacy. In a sense, here's what they're saying. We're not like those bad generations before us who did those horrible things to those prophets. See, we built the monuments. Jesus is saying, actually, the the way you honor the memory of a prophet is by honoring the message of the prophet, right? So this would be saying, man, we really honor Martin Luther King Jr., but you're still a racist. Like, no, you don't really honor Martin Luther King Jr. by just saying that, but by doing the things that, 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 that he pointed out. He's saying, you honor the legacy of the prophets, but you don't obey the message of the prophets. What was the message of the prophet? Repent and believe. What was the message of the prophet? There's someone who's coming that you need to, to bow to. And what do they do when Jesus comes? They oppose him. He says, you're not different. 
Verse 48, he says, you bear witness that you allow, you, you condone, you vote in favor of the deeds of your fathers. Why? They indeed killed them, you build their sepulchers. Now, you finished what they started. They killed them, you buried them. You're, you're, you're doing the exact same things is what he is saying. You're silencing scripture by saying, oh, it doesn't say anything to me because we're, we're, we're exempt from what it says. We call this today virtue signaling. Right? Virtue signaling, it's this convenient substitute for costly action. It's cheap and self-congratulatory. It's symbolic. So what are they doing? They're, giving, they're offering a cheap, self-congratulatory symbol rather than the costly association with the maligned prophets. In other words, if they truly honored the prophets, they would have received Jesus because the prophets talked about Jesus. Verse 49, he continues, Therefore also said the wisdom of God... Now, some people say, well, the wisdom of God, maybe that's the name of a book we don't have from the Bible, or maybe this is, this is a reference to Jesus. I think he's saying, God in his wisdom, God in his providence said this, I'll send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So the first and the last martyrs of the Old Testament which perish between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. So Jesus says God planned. He sent these prophets, these apostles, both Old and New Testament messengers, to declare God's truth to these people. He says, you just persecute the prophets. By the way, you can read volume two of Luke's history in the book of Acts and find how did they respond to the apostles? Well, they did the same thing. They persecuted them. They murdered them. Think of Stephen. Stephen makes the same point. He says, as your fathers did, so do ye. You're no different than those prior generations that you want to say you are better than. Now, how can God justly say, how can Jesus justly say, okay, your fathers killed them, but God's going to require the blood of this generation? Doesn't that seem a bit unjust to you? Prior generations killed Isaiah. We didn't kill Isaiah, yet we're going to be punished for it? What's going on here? I think what he's saying is you did not learn from history you have the benefit of generation after generation of accumulated truth, and you still do not acknowledge it. And by the way, this generation, of course, would commit the ultimate offense by killing the ultimate prophet, the very word of God, Jesus Christ. He says, your blood will be required of this generation. You will face this punishment. And I think A.D. 70, the horrific bloodletting that occurred when the Romans stormed Jerusalem was a direct fulfillment of this. You silence the scriptures. You don't want the Bible to speak. Verse 52, Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You enter not in yourselves, and them that were entering ye hindered. So we say, here's the door into the banquet hall of the kingdom. You've got the, the, key, of, the, the key of knowledge, the key of God's word, and you've taken it away from people. You've kept people from coming to Christ. You've kept people from understanding God's word. You are silencing Scripture. You're obscuring Scripture. You see, those who were meant to unlock the Scripture by declaring it and explaining it actually locked it. That's what they were doing. They so surrounded the Torah with their fences that you're like, I can't even see the Bible in there anymore because it's so smothered over with man-made rules. They obscured the Scripture with the veils of rules and regulations. Leon Morris put it well. They turned the Bible into a book of obscurities, a bundle of riddles, which only the experts could understand. These were guys who would get up and preach on a passage, and everyone else would be like, we're not seeing that. We can't get, how are you getting that from that text? Man, oh, you must be so smart and far more intelligent. They're exegetical methods. They would do stuff with adding up the value of the numbers of the letters and come up with all of these formulas and divide names certain ways and find hidden meanings in the text. By the way, people do that today. There's like all this, this whole cottage industry on the internet of people like the Bible code says this and the numbers mean that and we're going to find out who the mark of the beast is. And it's all very obscure. Rather than, hey, the, the plain sense of scripture, it, it, it doesn't need all of that to obscure it. They were preoccupied with hidden meanings, so preoccupied with hidden meanings, they missed the message. You can ask, how did Jesus' generation, like, miss the fact that the Messiah was standing in front of them. They've been so preoccupied with this minutia and with these hidden meanings that they missed the plain meaning of the text. They missed the fulfillment of Scripture standing right in front of them. See, the problem with legalism, 
both of the ancient variety, the modern variety, both of the work salvation variety and the holiness by rule-keeping variety, is not that it takes Scripture too seriously. So, man, these people with all of their rules, man, they really take the Bible seriously. No, the problem is not that it takes the Bible too seriously. It's that it does not take it seriously enough. The issue with legalism is fundamentally an issue with biblical authority. Now, we can diminish biblical authority some, in several different ways. One of them is trying to say less than the Bible says. Hey, we know that the Bible says that homosexuality is wrong, but we've got a better idea. Okay, that is undermining the, the Bible's authority. Hey, we know the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman for life, but we've got a better idea. That's undermining the Bible's authority. But you can also undermine the Bible's authority going the other direction is, you know, God didn't say enough here, so we're going to try to speak where he didn't speak. We're going to try to add some words in the white space on the page to try to say more than God said, to say, thus saith the Lord when God has not spoken. That is also a rejection of Bible authority. So come along and say, you know what? It is a sin against God to have music that has syncopation. Okay, okay where, where, where's that in the Bible, right? Where, where do we get that from? Uh, we, we add to what Scripture says. So what does the legalist do? The legalist thinks that Scripture does not say enough, so he must add to it. He silences Scripture by speaking over it. And that's what these guys did. They obscured Scripture. So they did it a few different ways, building the tombs of the prophets, persecuting the prophets themselves, like attacking the messengers, and by taking away the key of knowledge with their obscure ways of handling the Scripture and keeping people away from the truth. But come to the final point. And maybe you've kind of zoned out. I know this feels like fire hose of Bible coming at you today. This is a lot of scripture we're hitting. But come back and join us right back here. Verse 53, the final problem, the final characteristic of legalism is that it contradicts Christ. It's fundamentally a misunderstanding of the gospel. So look how they respond. It does not say the Pharisees and the scribes, when they heard this, fell on their faces and they repented and begged Jesus to... to... No, they didn't do that. The warning went unheeded. As he said these things, or it's probably the, the, the text should read, Jesus went out. Jesus departed. This is very symbolic. He's had dinner with these guys, and he said this message. They've rejected him, and Jesus is walking away now. That's scary when God leaves you in your sin. Dinner's ended. Jesus has departed. And this departure is a sign of coming judgment on these entrenched legalists. The only hope lay in repentance. So notice what they do. The scribes and Pharisees began to urge him vehemently. What's the idea here? Is that they became extremely hostile to Jesus. I mean, they've been hostile all the way through his ministry. But man, at this point, we, hit, we, we, we bring it up a level of the hostility. This is going to lead directly to the cross. Crucify him, crucify him. Flows right out of what's going on in verse 53. They began to oppose him vehemently, to oppose him in just the strongest way possible. So what do they do? They began to provoke him to speak of many things. They began to interrogate him. Okay, if you're in an interrogation, it's not a friendly thing. It's not a, hey, what do you think the weather's going to do tomorrow? No, interrogation is, we're going to try to drill down to make you say something. Ha, gotcha. They begin to interrogate him about many things, laying in wait for him, seeking to catch him. So this, I, I like that language of laying in wait. They're trying to bait the trap. This is a hunting term. You're going to bait the trap. You're going to put the feeder out there in the field with the, the grain that the deer likes. Put the trail cam up there and, so you know when to come. And, and That's what they're trying to do with Jesus. They're trying to entrap him. They're setting up an ambush a rhetorical ambush. They want, to say something, they want him to catch something out of his mouth. They want, him to, they want to force Jesus to say something that they can then formally, before the Sanhedrin, say we're going to charge him with heresy. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get him to say something on which they can then have him executed. Here's what they are trying to do. They're trying to push Jesus to the margins. They're trying to silence Christ. Why? Because if Jesus is the Messiah, their whole system is garbage. If Jesus is who he says he is, then everything that they've been living for has been a lie. So better to silence and marginalize Jesus, better to contradict Christ, than to accept what he says. So, so what do we do with this? How do we, what's the answer to all this legalism? Maybe we go through the searchlight of scriptures shining in your heart, and man, there's some areas I, I need to deal with. By the way, before we come to the Lord's table, deal with those areas in your heart be it pride or tradition. The answer to this is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is antithetical to legalism. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what keeps Christ at the center. 
It allows Jesus to speak. It allows the Word of God to speak with all of its authority. So what does the gospel do that defeats the snare of legalism? What is it the gospel does that breaks those chains of legalism in our hearts? Well, number one, the gospel saves us. The answer to all legalism is not more legalism, to be like, let's be really legalistic towards legalism. The answer to legalism is the good news of Jesus. You can agree, none of this is good news. More rules, more burdens. Oh, the gospel says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Maybe you have been laboring in, under a system of religions just exhausting to keep up with everything, and Jesus says, just come, lay that all down, rely on me. You see, Jesus' death on the cross is good news. It pays the penalty of our sins, so we don't pay it ourselves. His resurrection throws open the doors of heaven for all who will repent and believe. And here's, here's some of the best news, is the gospel reconciles us to God. It brings me into a right relationship with him. It, is, it, it adopts me. It grants me status as a son. So I no longer obey God as a servant trying to keep the rules of a master but I obey as a son who loves his father. How does the gospel drive out legalism? The gospel saves us. No works, no human effort, it's all of grace. But the gospel also sustains us. Christian, there is not a day that goes by where you do not need the gospel. The gospel provides continued cleansing for my daily depravity. You see, I need the gospel every day because I sin every day. And the one answer to sin is not my works, but is the finished work of Jesus. The work of Jesus is the sole basis for my continued acceptance with God. The gospel fuels our holiness. The gospel motivates our obedience. The gospel sustains our love. The gospel is not merely the doorway into the banquet hall. It is the doorway. It is the feast. It is the table. It is the building. It is the architecture. You see, the battle against legalism is lifelong. I said at the beginning of the message, I'm a recovering legalist. It just creeps up in our hearts. I'm going to... Make God happy by doing things. And it is the gospel that helps us. We're like recovering addicts. Coming to church is like checking into rehab. We've constantly got to remind ourselves of the gospel. You see, the moment we separate our Christianity from Christ, it's no longer Christianity. The moment we make rules to define a holiness that does not have the cross at its center, we're slipping back into legalism. We need to be strengthened by regular reminders of the gospel. You see, the gospel reminds us of our inability. The gospel reminds us of our depravity. The gospel reminds us of our rebellion. The gospel reminds us of our brokenness. The gospel reminds us of Christ's sin-destroying sacrifice. The gospel reminds us of Christ's death-defeating victory. The gospel reminds us of Christ's grace-based acceptance. And the gospel reminds us of Christ's pride-debasing forgiveness. Legalism cannot coexist with such pride-debasing, God-exalting, holiness-empowering truth. And that's why today we're celebrating the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper is the God-ordained reminder of the gospel. It reminds us that we're starving, hungry people.